It's about tefillin, and I want to thank Dan for suggesting it. We were actually scheduled to give it uh, many months ago, and I think it kind of, you know, what happened was is that I was scheduled, and then on Sunday, my son, like, jumped off, he jumped off, like, a table, and he hit himself on his knee, and he had he needed, like, 28 stitches. Oh, that's so a big, big Oh, yeah, he, yeah. That was okay, a. Though. He's okay, but that's why I wasn't scheduled. My brother came and gave the class instead of me. Oh, really? That's yeah. So, uh, but what I found, what I discovered since then is I have this, all these fantastic videos I'm going to show, t- show you guys today uh, about fill-in. Um, so I feel like it's, you know, kind of in a uh, weird way. It's, I think we benefit, the class benefited because I think it'll be like a more of a, because when I watch these videos, I learn stuff like, a, like how they made fill in all these details. Very interesting. So just, uh, just let's talk about an introduction. You know, we talk about uh, mitzvahs and something like tefillin, which is very striking, you know, uh, very visual. Um, to be, you know, if someone, if you just saw someone wearing tefillin, you, you know, it would strike you as very bizarre. You've never seen it before. I know when I'm in the airports, sometimes you're in airports, you have to like, you dodge into one of the lounges and like that to put your tefillin on, you know. But sometimes I remember like these memories of like being in Milan or something like that on a stopover and like, the only, you know, you either wear tefillin on, if you want to wear tefillin every day, you either wear it on the plane or you wear it in the airport. You wear it in the airport and I was looking at you. You know, it's a very striking mitzvah. Um, it's, you know, this is very, this very highly detailed, as we'll see um, in, in the videos. Do a lot of people wear tefillin all the time? I mean, when they're so when I was, um, it was an old thing. Right? Yes, yeah, so it was more just during with, the service. Well, well, with tefillin, the reason why um, people by the Torah says wear tefillin during the day, so we know you don't wear tefillin during the night. No one wears tefillin during the night. Um, no one wears tefillin on Shabbos as well. Tefillin and Shabbos. Interesting, interestingly, tefillin is not worn on, on Shabbat or holidays. Uh, now, so from a Torah perspective, you wear it the entire day. Uh, now, the reason why we don't wear it the entire day is because already hundreds of years ago, the sages determined that when you wear tefillin, you have to be very mindful. You can't let your mind wander. If you're going to be sitting there, putting your feet at the table and watching television, you shouldn't be wearing tefillin. You know, tefillin's sacred. You know, you, if, you're ab- you know, if you're able to just think entirely about what you're doing, about the mitzvah, about to- Torah study, about prayer, you know, that's when you're supposed to be wearing tefillin. Um, so therefore, well, that's number one, mindfulness. Number two, it's clean body. So if someone has diarrhea or any sort of bodily, you know, someone is passing gas or whatever, um, they 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 sh- they can't wear tefillin. Uh, so um, therefore, for those two reasons, the sages uh, decided, determined that it's better that someone just wear tefillin during the prayer services in the morning because they have to wear tefillin at least once a day. Uh, and that way, you know, if it's just isolated to the time of the prayer, well, then it's not so long, so you can keep your body clean. And number one, and number two, uh, you have less of a time that you need to concentrate and to keep your mind on. You know the sacred uh, sacredness of of what you're doing in Israel. I mean, when I was in Israel, there's this uh, um, there was this yeshiva that was next to ours. It, this was a remarkable place. This this was like a, it was a ph- entire philosophy. It wasn't just a, it was a yeshiva with its own philosophy. And that is, let us take the uh, able and receptive brains of young children and just engorge them with Torah. Literally, like in George, like just just siphon in as much as you can, or siphon out, or whatever. Just make it as replete as possible. Just totally, just lay it on. This is Shiva. They would have they would have school three hundred and sixty four days a year, 
300, one day a year they didn't have school. And that was Tishabav, the ninth day of the day that you're not allowed to study Torah. And they had a whole system where you start from, uh, you start from, you know, the uh, scripture, and then you learn the whole scripture by heart, all 24 books by heart. And then you move on to the Mishnah, and you learn all the Mishnah by heart. And then you move on to, on to Talmud. You know, so they would ta- take on Talmud much later than the traditional yeshiva model, but they, by that time, they would know all a scripture and all of Mishnah by heart. You know? and just That was their attitude. You know? How many rebelled? No, it's, um, it's, it's, I, I think that the kids that do it, they love learning. Yeah. You know, they make it fun, they make it exciting, and you're able to see you know, your, your, your improvement your accomplishment is 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 there, you know. Um, it's it's tangible, it's palpable. Like you see, look, I know this by heart. I, I I have I have nephews in Israel that they go to like a hybrid yeshiva. It's like half traditional and, and half kind of this new model. And like I remember they were like eight or nine years old, and you say, okay, track date, sachem. Chapter three, Mishnah seven, boom, and you start reading, just parodying it out, and they just know it. It's and it's incredible, you know. You know entire swaths of Torah by heart. So, you know, it's to, you know, yes, of course. Like for us, like we're studying, you know, we've been studying that for what a year and a half, two years, something like that. So we're growing, you know. We know more about Torah. We know about more about Judaism. We know we understand. We learn more about mitzvahs. You know, we gain more meaning to the rituals and the, you know, that we do. Do we feel that we're different? Do we feel that our soul is being engaged? Maybe. Maybe a little bit, you know? But it's, it's a hard thing. Like, you feel it or you don't feel it. Sometimes you do feel it. Sometimes you don't feel it. You feel it a little bit, but then you feel a little bit less. One step forward, two steps back. We don't know. But imagine if we had taken this time and just we memorized all of Genesis. And then, you know, Genesis backwards. Forward. Well, then that's more of an accomplishment. So I think that contributes to the children feeling good about themselves, feeling that they accomplished and... You know, of course, there's dropouts everywhere. But they're isolated. No, 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 not, no, not necessarily. Yeah. I'm saying, uh, maybe, I don't know. They, they're, they're in the old city, the old city of Jerusalem. That's where they have them. So these guys, they also used to work. Is it No, not Meishirim. No, Meishirim is totally different. Uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, um, which, how isolated can you be? The place is just, you know, swarming with, like, yeah. people that like, just walk from all corners of the world, just tours and whatnot. So these guys, they would wear tefillin the entire day. Some of them, some of them would, would, would you know, would wear tefillin because they're like studying Torah all day and like just singularly focused on that. So we wear it uh, partially, and, uh, and you know, I wanted to give as by way of introduction before we see the videos, I wanted to you know give a little bit of a you know overview as to the meaning behind the mitzvah. Um, in our discussions in the class, I think we kind of built uh, at least a framework, you know, a system for what we look at as an integrated ideology. You know, we look at Judaism not just as a collection of small habits of, of musar, of ethics, of law, of, of philosophy, of theology, of ideology. It's, it's, it's all built as one. You know, it's, it's, it's one approach to life. You know, not to say that it's that there's that there's no room for, you know, for individuality, of course, but the, the, it's it's unified. There's you know there's unification along you know with everything, and therefore everything has purpose. You know, so we talk about God, so we talk about uh, theology, and and how that translates into having purpose, and how man is at the center, and free will, and then the uh, the turmoil 
that and the challenges that man is placed within and how that fits into the whole picture. And how Torah is going to be the tool the man is going to use to overcome his challenges. And those challenges are going to embolden his soul. And he'll be able to overcome his body and become more of an intellectual and less of someone who's dominated by their, uh, by their whims and by, the, and by their instincts and by their animalistic side. And how all this contributes to man perfecting himself on the individual scale, man perfecting the world on the massive scale, you know, because as, per, as a person becomes more and more of someone who is uh, dominated by their intelligence, that's an evidence of God, and that teaches the world about God. And the world is broken, and the world is fundamentally flawed, thus we need to fix it. What's the flaw? The flaw is, is that God and morality are not there built in. You have to import it. How do you import it? By accessing your soul. How do you do that? What tools, what canals are you using? The Torah and the mitzvahs. That's the basic uh, structure. Of course, this, it's, it's highly detailed. There's more nuance than that. And there are subtleties in that. But that's it. You know? And we say, if we just say, if, if we just take life you know, and just live it, you know, go with the flow. You know, if we don't try to improve, if we just let it be, if we don't act, what will happen? Our bodies will dominate. You know, our bodies are in pole position. Our bodies and our instincts are there and they're what we feel from day one. You know, a child of three or four or five isn't dominated by their intelligence. It's certainly not dominated by their soul. It's, it's whims. It's instincts. As we get older, we, you know, using the powers of the Torah and the mitzvahs, we access the soul. And the soul is slowly going to, hopefully, is going to tip the scale in favor, of, in favor of the soul. You know, we look at Moses. Moses is the very man that ever lived. You know, he had his soul entirely influencing his reactions, his his thoughts, everything. You know, that's what it looks like, where the balance is totally shifted to the intelligence and the, and and the soul. Thus, a total manifestation of tikkun olam. Like that's we see God. You know, we look at Moses, and so we you know, obviously not uh, you know the Christian way of seeing God in the man, but. There is evidence by the fact where we see someone as living a life where, uh, where through their actions it's demonstrated that God exists, that's teaching us, that's perfecting the world. Uh, but if we do nothing, we're going to fail, no question. You know, thus, we look at the mitzvahs and the Torah as being not only a way to stay afloat, but a way to progress. If we didn't have them, what would life look like if we didn't have Torah? Well, we would certainly... You know, we would certainly not improve ourselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, like we say in Psalms, that the man is no better than animal. You know, we wouldn't be any better than animals. Yes, of course, we're more intelligent and more sophisticated. But our actions, our perspectives, our morals would be no different. It would be animal- animalistic. The Torah and the ideas of morality and the ideas of the intelligence, they enable us to become a man, to become a person, to become someone who is higher than animals. So that's that's the overall idea. Now, not only is the Torah demanding us to be a human. That's stage one, I would say. Be a human. How does a human act in a way that's different than animals? The Torah demands things of us, requirements of us, that are not only to be a man, you know, to be a human, to be a great person, to be a perfect person. You know, to have this attitude, this knowledge, this understanding, this reality penetrate us to such a degree that the Torah could say you should love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your, with all your resources. 
that the attitude of loving God, right, of having an emotional response to this reality, on such a degree that I say my whole heart, my body, take even if you kill me, right, it has to encapsulate us entirely that we should favor martyrdom uh, as as a as a reality. Um, to uh, uphold this uh, this idea, it has to you know encompass us entirely. So, how are we going to do this? Like, how are we going to take the ideas of the Torah, the wonderful ideas of the Torah, and have that translate into us uh, in the way of this emotional uh, response to God? How are we going to take the ideas of the Torah? and integrate them into our behavior and have it penetrate us and change who we are as people. That's really the problem that we're facing. We, we have uh, a mission, and we need the instructions of how to do that. So that's what we call Torah and mitzvahs. What's the purpose of Torah? You ask the question, 613 mitzvahs, so much detail, such subtlety, such minutia. Torah, such strict requirements. Why? Like, why do we need so much? Like, what is the purpose of so much detail? The answer is, is that this entire framework of the, the guidelines, the instructions that the Torah gives us, if we were to follow them, we were able to fulfill, number one, becoming human, number two, becoming a great person. That's how it works. Now, how do the mitzvahs achieve that end? You know, all the mitzvahs, all the details. So I, I always look at mitzvahs as, being, as accomplishing two things. Number one is remembering God. Number two is integrating God. Like this. We're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Assuming, you know, let's imagine we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. We see all the wonderful miracles. We saw the ten plagues. We saw the splendor of the sea. We saw Pharaoh being humbled. We have this prophecy. We have the Ten Commandments. We're changed people. We're changed. We had the inspiration. We're sold. What happens now? We're sold. That's it. So it's done. Over. Close the book. We're done. We can rest on our laurels. The answer is no. The second you start resting on your laurels, the power of the body, the power of the physicality, the power of our animalistic side is going to take force. And what's going to happen to our inspiration? It will slowly dissipate. That's what's going to happen. Even the people that were at the foot of Mount Sinai, what happened to Mira 40 days later? Golden calf. No greater evidence that inspiration doesn't last. How do you take inspiration? How do you take a knowledge that we had? had? How do you take any, we can even lower this down to a, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be spiritual. Let's say someone has any sort of inspiration. Any sort of inspiration. How do you perpetuate inspiration? You know, don't text and drive. Inspiration, right? We all know that texting while driving is probably not so safe. We all know that. When we've had inspiration, we said, oh, my friend so-and-so, he got into an accident, or, you know, on our street, there was this car wrapped around a tree, and there's clearly the guy was hurt. I don't know if he made it out. Who knows? And there's no way he got there without texting because it's so far away from the street. You have an inspiration. What happens? The next day, you don't text while you drive. You don't do it. But two days later, I don't know, maybe just standing, take a look at your phone. You know, maybe. And then about a month later, you're still texting like you were, like, you know, never before. 
inspiration, ideas, understanding has a shelf life. And the second you have the inspiration, it already starts deteriorating. That's what happens. No matter how inspired you are at a certain point, it's going to start to dissipate the second uh, that you are finished with the inspiration. How do you maintain it? How do you keep the fire hot? How do you perpetuate the feeling and the understanding and the insight that was gained at the time of the inspiration? There has to be some accomplishment. You know, we have some accomplishment and, and we try to get further and further. More and more. So, yeah, so, that, so, so what you're, you're saying the way to, to, to relive it. Yeah. Okay. Relive it. Or to put signposts. You know, if you were to, if you were to put a little thing on, you know, and your phone gives you, a, if your phone gives you a message, don't text while driving, you know, every five minutes, you'll remember it. You'll relive it. You know, every time you hear that memory, you know, you go back to this idea. Oh, whoa, I remember that guy being wrapped around the tree. Maybe I shouldn't touch while driving, you know? And if you have signs on your door that says, don't touch while driving. Every door has signs in it. Don't text while you drive. Don't touch while you drive. Every, every sign. Those were yeah, all don't touch while you, you drive. Okay. Okay, you, <laughs> wouldn't, you wouldn't see it. You don't see it. I agree. You know, but it would be there. And maybe once a, maybe once a day, you would think about it, you know, while, while, while stopping. You know, while living your life, you would stop and think about it. <laughs> so we look at we look at mitzvahs as being as being um, similar to signposts. How so? We have in every door. Every door is a mezuzah. What's the what does the mezuzah say? It reminds us of these ideas. It reminds us of God. That's it. It's a reminder of God. Every single door. Why? So you should see it everywhere. You know, tefillin. What's inside the tefillin? We get to the details and you know, it's in fantastic videos. Same thing. We're here in the morning. What's the Shema? It's a declaration of what the Mazzuz is saying, right? What is Shabbat? It's a it's a whole day dedicated to that. What are the holidays? What are the prayers? Right? When you wake up in the morning, when you, when you eat food, you say a blessing. What's that? Remember God. Remember God. Remember God. Remember God. Remember God. Remember God. Huh? Everything. It's exactly everywhere you go. It's on four sides. Everywhere you look, you see God. That's the idea. All the mitzvahs, many of the mitzvahs, are reminders. We know we we know God exists. We don't doubt that. We all believe that. Now, but you believe it, so, but you still live a life. You know, you have, you have a job, you have a family, you have kids, you, you know, you have to deal with, you have politics and you have sports and a lot of things that are occupying your mind. And what happens when the other things occupy our mind? Where does God go? God goes to the back seat. And what happens to this whole vision of character perfection, of becoming this great person as uh, or via harnessing this power? What happens to it? It, it gets relegated to being something that, you know, it's just a, a box that you checked off, but it's not, it's not a real influence in your life. What does what the mind do? Puts reminders everywhere. In the morning, you wake up, first thing you say, Moda'ani. At night, the last thing before you say, uh, the blessing of a map pill. Your day is bookended by remembering God in the morning, remember God at, at night. We have the prayers scattered through the day, remember God. Our, 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 our doorposts, our declarations, our Torah study that we do every day, our mitzvahs of all kinds are there as signposts to remember, uh, as, uh, to remember, to remember God. So tefillin is, is one of those as well. Tefillin is... Um, Here's a, I have a uh, go ahead. contradictory thing. Go ahead. Did we really believe, it's hard for me to believe that, that although I do put on tefillin, <laughs> That God uh, put us on this earth to spend our 
entire day, every day, remembering or worshiping. It does. It seems like uh, the word I want to say is for God. You know, being that powerful, and you know, we just using using the the people. You know, just to pray to him all the time. It just it doesn't. Is that it's we're we're stroking God's ego? Is that what you're yes, 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 yes. But, but that's um, that's true. And and in 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 Jewish uh, philosophy, would argue. That we're not doing it for God, we're doing it for us. Because, um, as we've mentioned in other classes, this realization, this understanding, is to our benefit. It's not to God's benefit. God doesn't change. Remember the definition. If you accept the definition of God that the Judaism is espousing, God cannot improve or regress. God, God, you can't make God any happier than He is. You can't make God upset. It's not. A, it's not a possibility. God doesn't have emotions. God is not a man. Exactly. God exactly. does not exist. Well, he does have emotions. In the, yeah, it's a reality, and it doesn't change. Anger, God is. It's angry, and this right, but right, right. But remember, that's the very the first page of of Maimonides is that's an anthropomorphism. That's not a. That's not a, God really was angry. God changed uh, materially because God can't change materially. Okay. Um, it's just the way God responded was what we would translate as anger. Um, but yes, I'm saying that's that's a basic philosophical problem that Maimonides addresses the first page, literally the first page of 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 his of his theology of his four chapters of theology. So we were saying. So is so, that the guide to the perplexed? No, no, no. That's the 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 Mishnah Torah. Okay. Um, uh, the Mishnah Torah is uh, uh, the Yad Hazaka. It's, it's two multiple names. It's the fourteen books of all of Jewish law and everything, all of everything. Jewish everything. It's the book that Maimonides starts off by saying in, the, in his introduction. Says all you need is scripture, and my and, and and my book and my books really fourteen books. All you need. You don't need Talmud. You don't need Mishnah. You don't need Medrash. Nothing. I'll give you everything. You don't need Jewish philosophy. Nothing. Nothing else. You just need this book and that book, which is very ironic because no book has had more books published upon it. No, no book has spawned more scholarship than than the, than the Rambam's book. Though not no other single book. Um, has has uh, has had that. It was uh, about three hundred books a year published on on the Rambam on that particular book. Three hundred books a year. We're talking about a book a day, basically. Never read one. <laughs> so uh, so yeah. So so that's that's the first thing we look at uh, in in mitzvahs. They're reminders. They're <clears throat> signposts along the way. Remember that. Now, why does God do that for us? Remember, because because at the core of what the universe is all about is man grappling with a challenge, with a conflict, body and soul, right? God and physicality, materialism and spirituality. That's at the core of, of, of what the universe is all about. Thus, it's so vital for us uh, to have these reminders because otherwise, what would happen? What happens when you take your foot off the pedal? Right? You, by definition, you're going to regress. That's what's going to happen. So that's number one. Now, um, number two, I think is also very important. Like you have these reminders, but like you said, if you don't take them to heart, if you just you to be rote, you to be just like, oh yeah, I see the mezuzah, I see the tefillin, right? Of course, part of it is you know it's not just doing it; it's it's feeling. It's you know that's why we say you know it's very important to learn why you do mitzvahs because if you don't know why you're doing the mitzvahs, then maybe you, you won't even fulfill what the Meaning behind it is, you know, if the purpose of a mitzvah is to get you to think about God, but you just do the mitzvah because you're just, you know, just doing what you're we're told to do, or just 
fulfilling, you know, just just filling in the uh, what are they with the kids' color? You just color, coloring within the lines. You know, if that's what you're doing, then you know. So that's number one. I, and that's the number one reason why we have mitzvahs. Number two, I think this is also um, uh, highly, highly uh, represented by the mitzvahs film, and that is like this. Let's say God is, is present in our minds. Let's say we pass the mitzvahs and we stop and we say, okay, God's here. Right? He, he's always around us. You know, we understand God. It's in our brain constantly. We, we, even the shower, what do you think about? Oh, God's taking care of me, or you're trying to figure out what. You know, think about God. Fantastic. But you act. How do you behave? How does it translate into your actions? What do you feel? How do you treat other people? How are you with your charity? How are you with your kindness? How do you treat your wife? How do, how do you behave? If I were to just look at your behavior, not, I, can't, I can't tap into your brain. Your behavior. Is it a behavior of someone who's dominated by... Is God influencing your behavior? Your actions? Or just your mind? Reminds me of the story about when you meet your maker, what's the questions he's going to ask you? First question is... Um, did you do business with integrity? Yeah, how did you do your business? How did you conduct your business? Second question is, did you take time to read my Torah and study it? Third question is, did you love your neighbor as yourself? And you can't answer that. That's right. It's the six questions that are asked. Oh, it's the Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's it, and it's 100% true. And is that what God really wants us, to just be constantly thinking about him but not acting? Like, remember what we said, God, God demands of us to love him. Love is an emotion. Emotions don't happen in your brain. They happen in your heart. It's a mindless ritual. How are we going to bridge this gap between what we know and what we do? Between what we understand and how we behave. Remember, there was a great man by the name of Esau. Esau. Great man. And when he died, they don't know how he died. There's a story behind Esau's, Esau's death. Anyone knows? So, Abraham and Isaac were buried in a, in a special cave. A cave or, yeah, a cave in, in Hebron. Who else was buried there? So, Abraham and Sarah. Adam and Eve were also buried there, according to Jewish tradition. Uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And then Jacob was married to several women. Rachel was married, uh, was buried elsewhere. His second wife, Leah, was first wife, technically, I guess. Was buried, was buried in the Marshmallow Plant, as was uh, Jacob himself. Rachel was buried at the uh, south end of that's Jerusalem. Right. That's right. In uh, yeah. right, weeping over her children. Right, right in Bethlehem. Uh, so we have eight people buried there. There's someone else who's buried there, but only their head is buried there. Talmud says is that what happened was Jacob died in in, in Egypt. So the the uh, Joseph negotiated with Pharaoh to take. Uh, Jacob's body back to Israel and bury him there. So Midrash gives us a little more. That's what it says in the Torah. The Midrash opens up the story and says that when they were when they got there, so um, Abraham and Isaac are buried there. Jacob has an older brother, Esau. They got there. Esau is standing there and says, "It's my spot. The last burial spot's mine. You buried your wife there. You know, Isaac had two ch- children, and there's two more burial spots there." You buried your wife there. Leah's buried there. And now there's one more spot left. That's mine. And he says, I'm not letting anyone go in. 
So they're all sitting there. They have, you know, they have Jacob's dead body and like, what's going on? So what they did was they said, but remember, you sold Jacob your birthright. So you gave it to Jacob. So what are you talking about? What do you, you know? So they said, well, we actually have a document, but it's back in Egypt. So they actually sent someone back to Egypt to go get it. Now, one of the grandchildren of of Jacob is a fellow by the name of Hushim. And Hushim was deaf. The son of Dun, right? Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was called Dun, Dan. And he had one son, Hushim. Hushim was deaf. And Hushim didn't understand what was going on. So he asked him, he's like, what's going on? I don't know how he asked it. But then he, uh, they said, well, they can't bury our grandfather because look at this guy's there. So what did he do? Hushim took a stick and hit, the, hit Esau on his head and killed him. I don't know if he took a stick or he took a sword. And Esau's head rolled, in, rolled into uh, to the cave. And they just buried Jacob. That's, that's the story. Now, as with all, as with all episodes of Agarata, we don't know if this is a literal story, you know, or this is a metaphorical story. Now, whenever you say that, there's always a, a danger. Well, the Torah is all metaphors. You know, there's always that risk of people saying that. No, when there's Agarata, that form of instruction, then there's the op, there's the the doors open for for uh, uh, for, for perhaps it's, it's metaphorical or not. Okay. But what we do know is that the Midrash says that Asav's head was buried in in this cave with the rest of with with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So my grandfather said, he says, Asav in his brain was no different than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No different. He wasn't that he wasn't a scholar, there wasn't he didn't understand God. None of that. His problem was not in his brain. His brain his head was buried with everyone else. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of our religion, great people that we learn from them till this day. Asaph was like them in his brain. His head was buried alongside them. What was his problem? He couldn't link his brain to his heart. He, he got it. In his brain, he understood it. If you, if you were to open up his brain, it would be no different than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's. That they, was not his problem. How did they decide that the, the heart was like the soul? Well, that's... Uh, I mean, the heart's just a muscle. It's just a muscle. Yeah. I think the heart's a representative of, uh, of emotions, of feelings, yeah. of, or of behavior. You know, or of consciousness. Um, or, or, you know, con- uh, the conscious. So the, you know, the, so there are those that argue, whenever it says the word lev in Jewish literature, it's, I mean, you know, lev means the heart. It's, a, it's just a muscle, like you said. But the spiritual element to the, to the physical is that it's the consciousness, is what someone feels, you know, what someone, you know, what someone, you know who you are when you think of yourself, you point. No, if I, if I asked you to point yourself, you know, you would go like this. No, you know, I unconsciously. All that. It was just what was the Yeah, yes, yes. Um, but remember, it's not talking about the physical heart that's just pumping. Right, it's right. talking about the, the spiritual element behind the, the corresponding spiritual. No, I, I, I so, so that's that. So it's all we repetition. Want, this is. Well, no. So on one hand, it's just a reminder every day. Yeah, on the other hand, we look at the film, there's one on the brain, there's one on one near the heart. It's representative of the other element of mitzvahs, and that is to link the brain to the heart, to have the ideas influence the behavior. That's what mitzvahs are for. So when you walk to by a mezuzah, right, what do you see? You see a reminder, but also if you stop, we have this tradition to kiss it, stop and kiss it. You see, all everyone's ever seen that. 
Why? Why are we doing that? Because we're trying to have the second element, and that is the integration. Stop and think, right? Have, it, have an action associated with this understanding. Because it's not just about having the, the realization, the remembrance, the signpost of God exists, but it's also about internalizing an entire heart. I want to say one more thing before we show the videos here. The very first time Tefillin is, is mentioned in, uh, in the Torah, who knows who wants to venture a guess? Tefillin is mentioned multiple Deuteronomy, times. Deuteronomy uh, 5, 6 or something? No, it's actually in Exodus. When, uh, it's in Exodus. Find it on, oh, it's in Exodus. I'm on, sorry, Exodus. Uh, right, it says it multiple five, times. Yeah. Yeah, but multiple times it says it that. Repeated, the Shema is in Deuteronomy. Shema is in Deuteronomy, yeah. chapter 6. The very first time Tefillin are mentioned is in the uh, the last verse of the Parsha Bo. Bo is the third Parsha in Exodus. What does it talk about? Bo is the is the Parsha of the Exodus. The last three of the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'm sorry, the, of the Ten Plagues. Uh, it's the the absolute humbling of of Egypt. It's closing of the story of of Egypt. You're out of Egypt. Uh, the death of the firstborn puts Philip. When you read it, you're like, wait a minute. The um, the editors they said well, we have another, we have room for another two verses here. We just finished the whole narrative of uh, of Exodus. There's room for no, two more verses. Let's throw in some mitzvahs here. Let's, let's, okay, which mitzvah should we do? This? They took a hat and they put 613 uh, pieces of paper in it. They shook it up like that and they set their hand in and they pulled out. Oh, Tefillin! Okay, let's let, let's let's use that. You know, is that what happened? Absolutely not. Now, how is Tefillin linked to the Exodus story? What could they possibly have in like, What could be the? How could this be the punctuation of the Exodus? Ten plagues. You see God just manipulating history. God just totally manhandling Pharaoh. Death of the firstborn. What do you see? You see God has complete control of everything that's below the ground. First three plagues. Everything that's above the ground. Next three plagues. And then the next, the, and then everything that is uh, from, from the sky, from up above, the, the you know, uh, plagues uh, uh, seven, eight, nine. And lastly, see God's control of the ultimate, and that is life and death. The ten plagues were a complete lesson in faith. If you were to analyze the ten plagues, you would understand God, and you would have no doubts about his existence and his dominion. 100%. This is the education of the nation. This is the formation of our people. The education that we got at, at Egypt is the groundwork, the foundation for the nation that we've had and we've built uh, since then. All these great lessons, God tells you, you know what? When we finish these lessons in faith, you built a profile of God. You have an understanding of God. And you have a realization of God. It's real. It's true. You have evidence. Fill it. Don't stop there. Don't stop with the understanding of God and not take it to the final step. Integration. It's all fine and dandy. Believing in God is wonderful. We demand more. What do we, what do we demand it? It's felon. Take those ideas and integrate them into your action. Be a different person. Act like a different person as a result of, of, of this knowledge. Thus, after the Exodus story, it's the most complete lesson in faith that has ever been delivered and has delivered to an entire nation collectively. The last verse that we say, we're Philip. Take this idea and make it change who you are. That's what mitzvahs are about. That's what the Almighty expects us. And that is how we're going to fulfill our requirement, personal and communal of Tikkun Olam.
How? By taking the ideas, taking the knowledge, taking the Torah, taking the intellectual, and using the power of the mitzvahs as demonstrated by the tefillin, and have it influence who we are. Become different people. Become people that we look, someone looks at them and says, this person behaves differently. This is not just someone who is, believes in God, you see it. We see it. We, all, we look at them and they're a model for, for behavior of, of a great person. That's our introduction. Let's, let's, uh, we have uh, 11 o'clock. Let's, uh, let's look at the uh, videos that uh, we have here.